First Thessalonians chapter 3, and the last three verses, verses 11 to 13, is our text. Let's hear the word of God. And now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. May he bring his blessing. My reading through the Bible, I come across this verse in 1 Samuel chapter 12, that always convicts me, and I hope it will convict you as well this morning. And before I read the verse, I want to set a little context for it. The context in 1 Samuel 12 is Israel, in their wrong desires and in their rebellion, in their strain, have asked Samuel to provide for them a king. They want to be like the nations around them. They want to have a leader that can take them out into battle and bring home their men in victory. They want someone that will help to lead them in the ways of the world, not as the judges have done. And remember, Samuel is the last judge of Israel from the book of Judges onward. They didn't want judges anymore. They didn't want someone telling them the things of God that would lead them in the way of truth and righteousness. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like the world around them. It is not unlike the church in every generation, struggling with its relationship to the world, either becoming like the world or becoming so isolated and insulated against it that they are not even engaging the world. The church struggles with these things. Israel did. And they wanted a wrong desire. And Samuel took that both personally, but he also recognized it was an affront against God. He saw that they were casting off God's holy leading of them. And he warned them of what they were doing. How offended God was because it was a rejection of the leadership of God over them as his people. And his words were compelling enough that the people of Israel fell under conviction. They repented in the fear of the Lord and they asked Samuel to intercede for them. Always Israel is looking for an intercessor. We have one. We know It is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know as uh, Hebrews 7 says, uh, He, the Lord Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Such a high priest is fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. In some ways, Samuel here is representing that glory of Jesus Christ to the people as they asked for him to intercede. Now that's the backdrop of these words. Uh, That's something for us to hold in our minds. What is this verse? It is 1 Samuel 12, verse 23. Samuel, in, in pronouncing that 
convicting judgment on Israel said, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. You hear those words? You see why? It it bears a conviction in my heart when I come to them almost every year and realizing what a sin it is before the Lord to not be praying for the church. To not be praying for God's people. We're sinning. And particularly, leaders within the church. It's one of the requirements within our setting and one of the requirements that I have that any who would be an officer, an elder or deacon, are to be present at our prayer services. Because this is one of the highest responsibilities we have as leaders within the church to be praying for the church. But that doesn't exempt everyone. We're called to this, to be praying for the church. Charles Spurgeon, we always go to this Baptist man when we want to reinforce things. He was a great preacher in his day. And he wrote about prayer often. And he said this, that a preacher who neglects to pray much must be very careless about his ministry. He cannot have comprehended his calling. He cannot have computed the value of a soul, nor estimated the meaning of eternity. Isn't that sobering? How do you pray for the church? How do you pray for one another? We know prayer is a means of grace. Our catechisms, both the larger and the shorter, end on the instruction of prayer. In fact, they give more attention to prayer than they do to the word and the sacraments as means of grace. Teaching us how to pray. Now, it's not saying we believe prayer is more important than the reading of God's word. Of course we don't. It's more attention given to remind us what is our duty every day as God's people. It's to be praying for one another, to be praying for the church, to be praying in this way for God's glory. And it's a means of grace. It's a way that the Lord Jesus comes and brings out his blessings of his salvation and mercy upon I wonder how do we receive mercy and grace? Prayer is one of those means. And, and to pray for the church is more than simply an utterance of, of phrases or words. Jesus tells us what it is to pray. It is to be pleading, asking, seeking, knocking. And he tells a story of what that is to look like. That man who needs to feed his guests and has no bread. And he comes banging on the door of his neighbor and says, open up and give me. (laughs) It's not that quiet little. And then turning away because nobody answered the door. He's banging on it until the guy gets up and opens the door. Or the widow who's pleading with that judge who won't give her justice. And she doesn't quit until she has And I use this phrase, nagged him to death. (laughs) That's the kind of praying we're called to. Where is the focus of your prayers? 
This is another thing. When you think of praying for one another and you think of praying for the church, where is your focus? And and while we are to be praying for one another's health issues, that tends to be the gravity, or not the gravity, but that tends to be the greater significant part of our prayer. The earthly, temporal matters of this world are very small in comparison to the eternal matters that count forever. Remember what Jesus said, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? You know, it's easy for God to give us things in this world. It's hard for us not to become attached to the things of this world. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Doesn't that frame a focus of your prayers for one another? Paul here, in the middle of this letter, it's basically the middle, he is praying for Thessalonica. It meets us in the form of a benediction, but it's not really a benediction, though some read it that way. A benediction is a declarative act. When I give the benediction at the end of our worship service, I am declaring to you God's blessing. I'm not praying it. It's God's purpose promise to give you what is declared to you in that benediction. And why I say this isn't a benediction is because the verbs that are used here do not meet us as imperatives or infinitives or participles. They are of that more rare form of a verb, what's known as optative, which is If I can put it this way, it's Paul's fervent desire before God for the people of Thessalonica. It's like saying this, my greatest wish for you is this before God. That's what these verbs are. And in many ways, this prayer of Paul for the church truly mimics Jesus' high priestly prayer. It mimics the the wish, the fervent desire that Christ has for us as his people, that Christ has for his church. You read in John 17, listen to some of these phrases. I do not pray, Father, that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. A prayer dealing with safety and concern of God's people. They're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. We're going to hear that next week. But you go on there. Verse 20 of John 17. I do not pray for these alone. I pray for all who will believe in me through their word. What's his singular most focused prayer for all of us as his people. That they should be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How united is the church right now? How united has it been over these last three years? Because we allow worldly things to shade over the union that we have in Jesus Christ. And the world looks at the church and says, I don't see a witness there. You see how important such a prayer is. And you get down to verse 24 of John 17. And again, this is Paul mimicking Christ. Father, I desire, Paul uses that same word. This is the desire of the heart of Christ for you. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me from before the foundation of the world. I say this, and I say this to convict, yes, not to belittle, to help as well. Do your prayers sound like, look like, contain these essentials when you think of one another when you think of the church when you come together to pray as God's people do your desires reflect our Lord's do you pray do you pray for the church and one of the first things we see here uh, verse 11 and the, the points are very obvious for us is praying, Sovereign God, direct our way. When you read uh, these verses all together, you see Paul brings out a Trinitarian doctrine that meets us in prayer. In prayer, And it's not a Trinitarian doctrine that's focused in how we pray. You will often hear people say, we are to pray to the Father in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul isn't giving us any kind of instruction in that manner of how we are to pray. What he is focused on is the one to whom we are praying. And do you in your prayers know and understand it is the sovereign God we are seeking to direct our way. This is our God and Father himself. Is that not amazing to your soul that you can look up and say, Our Father in heaven. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's praying to Jesus. People say we should only pray to the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory and worthy to receive our worship and prayers. This is who we are praying to. And what he reveals here is that the fullness of the Godhead is attending to our desires in this moment of prayer. Isn't that amazing? That God should be so concerned with the desires of your heart. And what he reveals to us as we begin to pray, Sovereign God, direct our way, is this knowledge, this this understanding that as we're praying to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, 
that as God, they are not only one in power, might, and substance, but that they are one in nature as God, one in purpose and will for us. Can you grasp hold of that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in purpose for you. They're together. It's like Paul would say in Romans 8, 31. When we think on God and we think on how he is working and doing all things for our salvation, he says, what can we say to the matter of these things? If God is for us, what's that next line? Who can be against us? Sovereign God, direct our way. (laughs) That's the truth. God is sovereign. But sovereign again, not in the way that we're always thinking of it. We know God is sovereign. We know he rules supreme. We know he accomplishes his will. Psalm 115, we know he does as he pleases from heaven. We know he superintends all things, even Satan's works, even our sins. Such that he's not the author of nor the encourager of rebellion or or disobedience or any sin. But he is working in and through all things for his glory. God is sovereign. We know that. But Paul's words here are deeper for us. When he is praying, sovereign God, direct our way. He is saying, God our Father... Lord Jesus, our Savior, as you have made it your purpose to guard and to guide our life in such detail that everything works for our good, guide us now in this. Direct our way. And again, it's that overwhelming understanding of the sovereignty of God that is working for you. Do you believe Everything, everything, particularly, not absent from, but very particularly, do you believe that all your sufferings are working for your good? And do you pray in a manner that says, God, I know not the end of these things, but you do. Sovereign God, direct my way. Because I know In all your sovereignty, you are working for my good. You know what that means? In the contrast, it's a humbling way of saying, Father, I don't work for my good like I think I do. But I rest in you because you are working for my good. And particularly... When he prays this, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Paul is keenly aware that, uh, why is he praying to God? Because Satan has hindered his way. We already saw that back in chapter 2. Back in verse 18. We wanted to come to you time and again. Satan hindered us. Can you fight against Satan? Do you have the strength in and of yourself to stand against the evil one? You know the answer. It's rhetorical. God does. You do not always understand 
even the ways of Satan, and how you might be hindered. Have you ever had those moments in your life where your plans did not work in accordance with what you had wished? Have you ever looked at someone and listened to them speak about all the plans that they have going forward? We're finished uh, our university, or I mean our high school, and we're going off to university because uh, I have this focus and, and I'm planning to be such and such. And you know, it's amazing that for most of us that works out. But the way isn't always easy, is it? We're hindered in many ways. And rarely do we step back and, and think, how, how are we being hindered? And even if it is Satan hindering, it's not an excuse to give up. It's not an excuse to sin. It's not an excuse to fold your hands and say, I can't do anything. We still, as the just ones, live by faith. But it's recognizing That even Satan's hindrances are under the sovereignty of God. And you stop for that moment and say, God, direct my will. And if it is, I mean my way, if it is your will, like Job, for me to be hindered by Satan, work your purposes, because I don't know the end. When you understand that, that the sovereign God is directing our way, and you are praying that, doesn't that bring some more rich understanding to those famous Proverbs of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that I know most of you have memorized? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, And he shall direct your paths. Do you believe that? Even as Satan may be hindering you. You see, it it pertains to how we are praying and understanding to whom we are praying. Sovereign God, direct our way. Now perhaps some of you are thinking, yes, but I have prayed in this way and I haven't received what I have asked for. You know, there's two reasons why you may not have received what you have asked for. You may have prayed for someone to be healed from some disease, and they die. And you think, God didn't hear me. (laughs) Well, those are things that are beyond us. Pray for healing. Don't get me wrong. Pray for healing. God can demonstrate his power in marvelous ways. It is easy, as we see in the life of Christ for him to touch and heal a person. He can do it. But when we don't have what we ask for, James 4 verses 2 and 3 tell us there's two reasons why. Number one is you do not have because you do not ask. (laughs) It's not God isn't a mind reader. Of course he is. He knows our thoughts. Have you prayed? Have you prayed with that fervency of banging on the door till he gives. Because anything less than that is presumptive prayer. The other reason, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on what? Your own pleasures. And that's a sobering thing too. Sovereign God, direct our way. Pray for the church, sovereign God. 
direct our way. And the second thing that we see here in in verse 12, and, and I'm putting this in the form of prayer and how we are to be praying for the church and for one another. Beloved Lord, increase our love. Isn't that what Paul is praying for them? May the Lord make you increase and abound. I am wishing that you would increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. You know, if there was ever an attribute of God and our Lord and the Holy Spirit that is central to our lives, it is this attribute of love. What are we told in 1 John 4 twice? God is love. And I know many times what we try to do with that phrase is to say, yes, but don't neglect God's holiness for the sake of love. God never sets his attributes in opposition to each other like we do. But know this, God is love. And that attribute of God is central to our lives. It is the grace that we are continually called to exercise to one another. And here is where the Trinity comes into play with the Holy Spirit. Who is it that brings the love of God into our hearts that we might exercise it? Romans 5.5. The love of God has been poured out into your heart by who? By the Holy Spirit. You have been, this is marvelous. I think some of these things are thoughts beyond us because we don't dwell on them enough to realize what a glory it is. The love of God has been shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit. Wow. I have something I never had before. The capacity to love as God does. Isn't that amazing? And as the Holy Spirit gives it, we understand it's a sign of his presence and power at work in us. Love is that preeminent fruit of the Spirit. They're ordered purposely. The fruit of the Spirit is love. You want to war against that spirit of hate and malice and anger and frustration that you often exercise, the fruit of the Spirit is there to put it down and love is preeminent. Love is the preeminent sign of abiding in Christ. Whatever else you might think it means to be abiding in Christ, what does Jesus say to us? A new commandment I have given unto you. Love one another as I have loved you. What else does he say in in John 15? As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. And then what's, what's those next four words? Abide in my love. Love is a preeminent sign. You are in Christ. Whatever else you might think it is. That love is also our preeminent witness to the world of who we are in this world. By this all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's no small thing to be able to pray, Beloved Lord, increase our love 
We are deficient in it more than we realize. When you pray for one another, you pray for the church. Here's what we're praying for. Increase and abound in love. And and this love that he's calling us to is more than just doing tangible good works. It's a love that confronts how you think and how you speak to one another. If you were to go to Ephesians chapter 4, and you look at the, the end, uh, verse, verse 30, down to verse 2 of chapter 5, here's a case where chapters and verses separate God's word in a way that's not so helpful. But Ephesians 4, verse 30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. And how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Let all of this be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another. another, Tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, verse 5, knowing these things, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and giving himself as that sacrifice and aroma soothing and appealing to God. See what he's saying here? Is that love is more than baking that pie and taking it. I'm not saying it's less than that, but it's more. What are your thoughts? How do you think me your pastor, how do I think of you, God's people? How do you think of one another? How do you speak to one another? If you are using cutting, sharp words against God's people, if you think sarcasm is a gift, you're wrong. It's offensive. It's not love. <laughs> you see, This challenges us. Walk in love. How did Christ love you? What did Christ say about his love? Greater love has no one than this. Here's the the height of love that we are to be aiming for. Greater love has no one than this than to what? Lay down his life for his friend. Are we friends? Are we friends? How have you sacrificed for one another? How have you sacrificed for the church? You see, it it comes to all of these things. Think about it again, even with the Lord's Day. How many of you will not be here tonight to worship because something else has priority? What are you sacrificing for the church? For the glory of God? We can come up with all kinds of reasons why we don't do something. But the bottom line comes back to love. It's hard, but it's glorious. When we love and imitate the love of God. And it's to all. As as Jesus would tell us, it's not just to our friends. Matthew 5, love your enemies. Well, hold it. Hold it. I have to love Trudeau? Yes. I have to love a government that hates me? 
Yes. I have to love that LGBTQ transgendered person who's offending me? Yes. How do I do that? See, Jesus doesn't leave us thinking. He says, bless them. Bless those who curse you. Don't get into these harsh, rude, sarcastic arguments. Bless them. Do good to them. You might think it's noble to go out and pull down a flag and set it on fire like some have done in the past with the Koran in front of Muslims burning it. Is that doing good in the name of God? Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. You see, it's not hard to hear those words. What is most difficult and challenging is for us. And see, it comes back to prayer again, doesn't it? Pray loving as Christ has loved. When did Christ love you? Did Christ love you when you said, Oh Lord, thank you, I believe in you, I'm going to give my life to you, I'm following you. Did he love you when you said those words? When did he love you? Romans 5. When you were an enemy, when you were a sinner, when you were godless, he loved you. When did the Father love you? to the degree that he would send his son for you? Was it because he looked down through eternity and said, oh, this man here is going to believe in me. I'll send my son for him. No, we're told, before the foundation of the world, God so loved that he sent. He loved this hateful, wicked world he created. Do we? How do you pray for God's people in the church? Sovereign God, direct our way. Beloved Lord, increase our love. And last, gracious Savior, establish our hearts. Verse 13. Establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That word establish, it means to make firm to set it firm on a foundation where you are blameless in holiness. And that idea of blamelessness in holiness is not about being sinless here on earth. What it is about is that inward purity of God's holiness that is effecting a transformation of my character before God. You see, and we're going to see that more as we get into chapter 4 next week, but do you see how the holiness of God is transforming you in your character in this world? Where you are able to be used of God to shine as lights in this world. And again, it comes all the way back to how we are presenting ourselves before this world. You look at Philippians 2, and I'll encourage you to come out to our evening services because Micah is preaching from Philippians and leading us through them. He's not going to get all the way through it, but hopefully he'll come to these verses in the time that he is with us. 
But you get to Philippians 2 where it says, where we are called to shine as lights in this world. How does that begin? The opening of uh, Philippians 2.14. Put away grumbling and complaining so that you can shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation. Isn't that amazing? How our grumbling and complaining rubs away the beauty of the holiness of God. We don't realize it, do we? Now you see why praying for the church, gracious Savior, establish our hearts that we would be blameless in holiness and so that we can stand with all his saints in that day that our Lord returns. You see, Paul's focus here is to eternity. Think about that. Gracious Savior, establish our hearts. Give us a heavenly mindedness that we are looking forward to that day when we will stand with all the saints at the coming of our Lord and Savior. Is that on your heart today? Why is this such an important prayer? I'll answer that with a question. What do you think is the most significant event that is happening in the world today? What is the most significant event that is happening in the world today? Now, I'll bet at least 50% of you went to something earthly. Heavenly mindedness. The most significant event happening in the world today is Jesus is building his church. He's building his church. It's not what the governments are doing. They can't prevail against it. They're going to come to nothing. It's not what we're suffering in this world with inflation and disease and all of the bad government that we have going around us. Jesus is building his church. Do you realize that? And he's building his church today. The father is calling out a people to himself. By the gospel. Oh, we can rail against much in this world. But if we are not bringing the gospel. The means by which God has said, here's my power of salvation for everyone. And we're not on God's side. Because he's about building his church. The Son is redeeming and justifying those whom the Father calls. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying and perfecting each one in Christ. All for this purpose, to build his church. Do you believe that? Gracious Savior, establish our hearts with a heavenly mindedness. Take us away from earthly minded things. Not that those things don't affect our lives. But let us see what you are doing. That we don't grow despondent, discouraged, cynical, and contemptuous before this world. And isn't that what happens to a lot of us? Eric Alexander, great preacher who died early this year, he said this, history's great climax comes when God brings down the curtain on this bankrupt world and the Lord Jesus arrives in his infinite glory. That's where God is moving everything. 
There will come a day when God will say to the whole world, Here is my masterpiece, the bride of my son. And in that day, Jesus will be in the forefront saying, Isaiah 8, 18, Here am I, and the children you have given me perfected in the beauty of holiness. Isn't that grand? Doesn't that warm your hearts? And doesn't that bring a hope that says, whatever this world has in its own, all its problems and that, I have a heaven waiting for me. That's the day we're laboring for. That's what Paul is saying here. Pray for the church that she will have a heavenly mindedness, that they will be looking for that day when blameless in holiness, they stand with all the saints in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's going to take us there again in chapter (laughs) 4. You know, that's what Paul wrote in Romans 8. That's what creation is eagerly waiting for. It's groaning for that day when we are revealed as the church triumphant. Do you? How earthly minded are your thoughts concerning the church? Hearts need to be established here more now than ever that we would be able to say with the hymn writer oh Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll where the trumpet shall resound and the Lord shall descend and what will we say even so Lord it is what it is wonder if your soul is not well, it's because you are more earthly minded than heavenly minded. What a prayer we are to have for one another. Pray for the church. Pray for one another. Pray, sovereign God, direct our way. Pray, beloved Lord, increase our love. Pray, gracious Savior, establish our hearts. And we will be praying.